Please open up your Bibles to Mark 14. That'll be our text this morning. We'll be in 32 through 52. In 2013, my friend Nathan set out to finish an Ironman triathlon. If you're not familiar with the Ironman triathlon, it consists of a 2.4-mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike race. And if you're still able to move after that, you earn the right to run a marathon or 26.2 miles. For the vast majority of people who attempt an Ironman, the goal is not to win The goal is to finish, and to finish under the time allotted, which is normally something around 18 hours. To finish an Ironman triathlon is an incredible feat of endurance. It's extraordinary. My friend Nathan trained for two years to do this. He and I talked about three weeks after he finished his race, after he walked through it, and this is kind of his story. Nathan recounts to me that he finished the 2.4-mile swim, noting that he felt better than he expected to after swimming two and a half miles. Went on to talk about the 112-mile bike race, and that's where he started to struggle, wondering if he'd be able to finish. And then, of course, he earned the right to run a marathon, which is an incredible feat in normal circumstances. But having swam 2.4 miles and biked 112 These 26 miles would be a challenge. Nathan described himself as cruising along, only casually mentioning the fact that his feet were covered with blisters and they were bleeding through his socks around mile 18. As he told me his story, he says the suffering for him really began at mile 20, laboring to take every step, but knowing that every step was one step closer to the finish line. And that's what kept him moving. So he labored on, struggling, passing mile marker 21, then 22, then 23, then 24, then 25. He tells me it was right around the corner when he could see mile marker 26, when his right knee buckled and he tumbled to the ground, having torn a ligament in his right knee. Less than half a mile from the finish line, Nathan wasn't able to complete this thing, this race that he had trained for, for two years and was 16 and a half hours into. He recounted that the worst part of it all, the worst part of enduring all of the suffering, the physical, the mental, the emotional, not just of the race day, but the training, was knowing that he didn't finish and wondering what it all meant. Was it even worth it? He told me that he was going to go back for another one. He hasn't as of yet. Um, that was eight years ago he did that. And his descriptions have always stuck with me. His descriptions stick with me because they're stories of suffering. I've often wondered if in the days following that, knowing different trials in his life, how that race story has helped him to walk with perseverance through other trials. This week in preparing for the message, I read a quote that wasn't attributed to anybody in particular, but it simply said, in this life, there are three kinds of people, people who have suffered, people who will suffer, and people who are suffering. Because to be frank, life is always hard. 
And you don't have to enter long endurance races to figure that out. Suffering could come from all kinds of places. Suffering could come from broken relationships. Suffering could come from the challenges of aging. Suffering could come from medical trials and diagnoses. Suffering could come from loss. It could come from anywhere. For example, many times in the book of Psalms, a psalmist writes, How long, O Lord? A phrase that seems to suggest suffering. We see it in Psalm 13.1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? Psalm 35.7. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction. My precious life from the lions. Or Psalm 89.46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? It's as if the psalmists are waiting for reprieve and it isn't coming. The psalmists are describing suffering. A real part of life and a struggle we all will face. So this morning as we walk into the book of Mark, as we continue on into Jesus' journey, specifically stepping into the main part, the heavy parts of Jesus' Passion Week, we're going to start to look at His journey of suffering. So let's turn to the Lord and pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would bless our time together in your word. Father, that you would consecrate it, that you would be present here, you would make yourself known to us. Father, we ask that you would grant us understanding. Father, we ask that you'd grant us insight. And Father, that you would use your word for our encouragement, for our edification, so that we might be built up for the day we face or for the days ahead. And Father, might we know and believe in our suffering that you are present. And why might we know and believe in our suffering that you are good. Might we just see Jesus in his suffering to know that He knows suffering and that He walks with us in it in intimate ways. Father, grant us Your presence. We ask this in Your name. Amen. This morning we're in Mark 14. It's a Thursday night of Passion Week. Jesus and His disciples have celebrated the Passover meal. Peter has told Jesus has told Peter He will deny Him. And now they're on their way to Gethsemane. I've entitled this message, The Journey of Suffering. For when we think of the last days of the life of Jesus, we tend to only think in terms of physical suffering. We tend to think of physical pain and even physical death. And when we do so, we often miss that Jesus suffered far more than that. Jesus suffered mentally. He suffered spiritually. He suffered emotionally. And to help us see that point... We're walking into this text this morning because we want us to see and understand that Jesus' physical suffering, quite rightly, leads to our deliverance. It leads to our justification. It leads to our salvation. And yet we're also to see and to understand that Jesus' suffering in mental ways and spiritual ways and emotional ways are given not just so that we would be delivered, 
but that we could have intimacy with him. That he suffered in real tangible ways so that we would have a real tangible witness of what it looks like to suffer in really hard ways. That's what's before us this morning. That we might see Jesus' suffering and more readily treasure the path that he walked that we might have greater intimacy with him. Consider Hebrews 2 verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now early on, I want to tie these two ideas for you that temptation and suffering really do go hand in hand. And I want to, I tie these ideas for you because we're going to see suffering and temptation used a couple of different ways together. What the author of Hebrews is trying to put out is because Jesus suffered, he's able to help you in your suffering. He knows the path. He's walked the walk. He's endured it. This might be my mini commercial for our connection class, Gentle and Lowly. In his book we talked about two weeks ago, Dane Ortland lays out an illustration of a man walking through the snow. Talks about it being temptation. As you walk into a storm that gets worse and worse and worse and worse, the reality is, is it gets so bad, some of us will be tempted to lie down to avoid the storm, thus missing the worst part of the suffering. What Dane wants you to see in that illustration is Jesus never laid down. That in our temptations and our sufferings, we bail out, and Jesus never did. Jesus knows suffering. That's part of what the author of Hebrews puts together for us in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now we often think about that just in the context of sin, right? He's tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. What I want you to see is that it's also in the context of suffering. He's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he suffered. He suffered in every respect you can, and he endured it. So look at how the author of Hebrews finishes that for us. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help at a time of need. He's trying to forecast for you that Jesus has been down the path before. It's like when you struggle. When you fail at something, when you fall short. This week, my uh, son brought home his report card. He has a D in social studies. I tell him, I rat him out because he's not here. Now, I should tell you, it's not because he's not working hard. He just hadn't figured out the nuances of being a seventh grader and, and uh, turning in his papers and kind of getting them scanned and sent in right. In fact, two of them, he scanned the back side of a piece of paper, not the front side of the piece of paper. Teacher with blank assignment. There you go. So Pierce and I are talking about this. I've got two options with my son with a D. I can shame the tar out of him. Are you kidding me? Why would you ever bring that into my house? Right? It's an option. 
Do you think that would be encouraging to his little soul? No, I sat down with him and said, buddy, I need you to know that when I was in college, I got two D's. It was hard. It was a learning experience. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus has with us where he's trying to tell you, I've suffered a lot that you might come to me with confidence. So when you look at Jesus, he's not just the one who's absolutely perfect, utterly amazing. Those are both true, by the way. But we miss the fact that he's completely approachable because of how he's suffered. So that we're called to come to him with confidence, with boldness, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Which is to say, church, this morning as we look into Mark 14, when you're tempted in your own suffering, be it today or any other day, you're going to be tempted to feel alone. You're going to be tempted to feel isolated. You're going to be tempted to feel like you're the only one. And I'm trying to set the table for the text. I'm trying to set the table so when we walk into Mark 14, you start to see this to understand that you are not alone in your suffering. That Satan that speaks those lies. That we're supposed to pick up and understand that we have a rich fellowship with Jesus because of his suffering that's beyond words. And we're supposed to pick up how Jesus suffered. So this morning we're going to look at, I don't want to make light of his suffering, but we're going to look at five principles that I think Jesus lays before us. Five points that we're going to see in how he suffered that we should glean from, that we should heed. I'll point them out as we move through the text. Let's get to Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, if we're to read the other three gospel accounts, we would pick up some more details. John would add for us that that Jesus often met here with his disciples. As in, this is not the first time that they've met in this Garden of Gethsemane. It's clearly a normal place for them to gather. Luke adds that it, Jesus encouraged all of the disciples to pray. It kind of gives us this grander, bigger picture that we're supposed to pick up that this is a normal gathering place. It's not unusual. And yet Jesus is praying. And he's asking his disciples to pray. Many ways this moment begins his journey into suffering. Went to Gethsemane, calls his disciples. That's our first lesson we want to take from Jesus' suffering. The first principle we want to glean. Don't do it alone. Jesus, in preparation, invited people in. Jesus, who was fully human, Jesus, who was fully God, knew he needed prayer, knew he needed support, knew he needed fellowship, calls the disciples together and asks them to pray. Beloved, we should heed that example. If Jesus needed people praying, we most certainly do as well. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, Mark alone gives us this account. They step further into the garden. He invites Peter, James, and John. 
And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. The NIV 84 puts it this way. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Beloved, Jesus is suffering. He's suffering mentally. He's suffering emotionally. He's suffering spiritually. Jesus is taking into account everything that's ahead of Him and the unthinkable nature of it. And we need to talk about that for just a second. What is Jesus doing here? Why is He struggling? For I want you to know, in my immaturity, I used to think it was because He was afraid of the weight of my sin. I used to think it was about us. I was the weight of your sin. It was the weight of my sin. But beloved, what I want you to take into consideration is a broader, deeper perspective to understand that what Jesus is facing is the wrath of God. And not just a little bit of it. Jesus is facing the full weight of the entire wrath of God being poured out on him. And that's enormous. That would cause any of us to buckle. Jesus is considering the wrath of God. And Jesus is considering what it means to be separated from his Father. That's what's breaking his heart. That's his suffering. That's that mental collapse of, how am I going to do this? That's that emotional, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. That's the spiritual, how long, O Lord, will you miss me? Am I forgotten? We watch Jesus suffer in this moment and in this passage. For Jesus, this journey is just beginning. He calls Peter, James, and John further in, tells them, remain here and watch. And we're to see that he keeps calling them in. He keeps calling his disciples to stay with him. He keeps calling them to stay and to keep praying, even though they're in many ways faithless. He calls them to pray. That's what it means to remain here and watch. Verse 35. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will. Not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prays. According to verse 37, it seems to suggest Jesus prayed for an hour. Mark summarizes it here for us in a couple of sentences. Abba, or Daddy. Jesus uses this intimate term showing the unique relationship he has with his father. Father, all things are possible. Literally, you can do anything. And if there is another way, beloved, I don't want you to think for a moment that Jesus isn't resolute about dying for your and my sin. That's not what's being suggested in this passage. What's being suggested is Jesus is looking at suffering. 
Jesus is looking at the weight of the wrath of God. Jesus is looking at being separated from God and saying, is there another way we can do this? And yet what we're to see in that is Jesus' heart in this is, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is willing to fully submit himself to the will of the Father, knowing what it will cost him. If the first principle is we to not suffer alone, we saw that in verse 32. The second principle we see here is to seek the Father. And I don't mean that tritely. I mean, seek after God the Father. We see Jesus repeatedly coming to the Father as in it's not lip service. It's not a Hail Mary prayer life. It's full and utter, total dependence. A recognition that his only help was to come from the Father. Which brings us to the third principle. Jesus doesn't... Incredibly important thing here that we should discern. Jesus recognized that there's a difference between your will and the will of the Father. Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. Not what I will, but what you will. Now I want to distinguish what he's saying here. Because I'm not trying to divide out the will of God. I think Jesus is saying, is there a different way? I'll go your way. I don't 